Let's pray together. God of our forefathers, we come um, this morning as a refuge of people, a uh, refuge of people in, in every generation because you are our refuge, as the psalm says, as, as Ronnie spoke and read, Ronnie read this morning. Um, we ask you first to show us just how precious life is that you have given, that your spirit has led our patriarchs, our ancestors through danger and brutality, that you are the giver of life, the source of all knowledge, that you are the fountain of goodness. Father, we thank you for those examples of the patriarchs and the prophets and um, the apostles who trusted you, the prophets who sought you and uh, who, uh, who received your words and then spoke your words, uh, the, the, uh, the ancestors who were never put to shame because they trusted you, the psalmist who rejoiced in you. We sing with them their songs of praise. Father, we thank you for the apostles who waited to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then uh, set the world afire uh, by the gospel of your cross and the resurrection. Father, we thank you for the martyrs who have uh, gone before us and those who are, are sacrificing their lives for the gospel today, that uh, we know that you went with them even into the fires. Father, you are the one who was, who is, and is to come. And we thank you that this path that we are walking on is not untried, it's not uncharted, but we follow many who've gone before us. We thank you for the signposts that you have given us that point us the way, that warn us of dangers. We give thanks for the greatest gift of all, your son, who gave himself up for us on the cross and then conquered death just by the sheer power of your love. Father, we thank you for him as being also the way who showed us, the, who is the pioneer of our faith. We are in a place where we have heard your name, and we are so blessed because of that, that we were born in a place where, and people were around us who spoke your name to us. And so, Father, when, when we confront sin and when we are called to endure pain and we are called to, to endure uh, darkness, we know that we are not the first ones and we know that we are not alone. So, Father, we ask that you forbid it, that we should fail to profit from these great memories and these great people of the ages that has preserved for us in this book that we call your holy word. Father, forbid it that we fail to profit from the saints around us now who has given us wisdom and good advice and who has introduced us to the name of the Savior. And so, Father, we're going to ask as we open your, your book this morning, as we talk to you in prayer, and as we look to see what you have to say for us, we ask you to change our lives and move in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing a study of, uh, of Isaiah. I'm calling this living on the edge of the inside. Uh, and we're, uh, the idea is that we live in the, in the, in the center. We live with, with in the realm of the kingdom of God. But as also as Christians, we are to live on the edge of the inside. We are also uh, in a world, and we also are called to minister to the world. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 7 uh, this morning, which is... Uh, a passage that is often read at Easter, I mean at Christmas time, and we'll look at that in a little bit. Uh, but we look at a, at a place at a time where faith is real, and I'm calling this faith in real time with real risk, uh, just because the idea we have about faith is sometimes a little bit different than that. 
years ago, there was a uh, kind of an unknown pastor, not that long ago, actually, a unknown pastor named Harry Lahowski, who, who ministered in an American Baptist church in Winnipeg, Canada. And his church was located in one of the worst neighborhoods of the city. It was, uh, it was uh, a, a known neighborhood for crack and other drugs, selling other drugs. And then, of course, there's always the crime and the poverty that goes with all that stuff. And uh, he was really frustrated. He had been there 14 years and had made little headway into the neighborhood. And he said, we were praying for people. We did rallies. We did protests. And we talked to the police about the drug. It was just out in the open. The drug market was just out in the open for anybody to see. And uh, it was just pretty blatant. And they talked to the police department. They were feeding them information. And the police said, you know, we can't really do a whole lot. It takes, you have to have patience. It takes a lot of time for investigation. And then even once we've done the investigation, there's no guarantee that we can get a, get a conviction. And he said one morning he was uh, reading John chapter 3, and Jesus was talking about the light in the dark. And he says that, uh, that light penetrates the darkness. And he said darkness is afraid of the light because light exposes their evil deeds. And he was praying about this, and he really attributes this to God speaking to him to do something about it. And he says, well, if darkness hates light, why don't we bring light to the darkness? And so what he did, he talked to his colleagues about this, and he got this idea of, uh, okay, they're, they're, um, they're doing this business here. He says, I've even talked to a couple of them myself. I've been to these houses. And a couple of houses in particular that, that were selling crack and making, and making crack. And he said um, that they started entertaining children, uh, inviting them in with video games and things like that. And he said then they would, they would groom them to be runners, lookouts, users themselves, and even dealers. And so he would confront these guys directly about this. And they would, they would say that, hey, I'm a good guy. I cut my crack clean. Uh, and he says, I, in the, uh, my, my customers who are single moms, I give them formula and diapers. I'm one of the good guys. And he was just like, you know, how, what is it going to take to shine the light on this, on this evil? So God spoke to him, he feels like, to come up with this idea. And he spoke with his colleagues. And he says, okay, you're such a good guy. Let's throw some light on this. And so he made this poster uh, that he started putting up all over town on telephone poles and, and uh, fences and schools everywhere uh, about these houses who sell crack cocaine. And you can't read it from here, so I'll tell you what it says. It says, crack dealers conveniently located in your neighborhood. Extended hours of operation. Superior quality control of our products. Pride in our great customer service. And then he'd have these little tear-off slips down at the bottom that said, additional franchises available. And so he put that on there, he put that up all over town, and it wasn't any time until the media found it. And uh, they would take the poster, and they went, they had pictures of those two houses that I talked about, and uh, they went to these guys and showed them the posters. And they were all on film, and they were just furious. Who did this? Who put this out there? And they tried to, the guy tried to explain, deny it, and say, well, I'm, I'm a good guy, et cetera, et cetera. And he was just, just furious. And they, they approached the the, uh, the Harry, the, the pastor of that church, and asked him about it. And first he, cl he played innocent, you know, and then finally he came clean and said, yeah, I'm the one who did it. And uh, it took a, a lot of guts to do that. And, of course, he immediately started receiving threats. Uh, one guy even threatened him on camera. Uh, he had to explain to his family why he did this. He had to explain to his kids who were afraid 
and uh, said that because of his own drug pass, uh, drug addiction pass, he felt like this was really passionate. He was really taken by faith to do this. And he said, I started walking down the middle of the streets only in daylight because I figured if they're going to kill me, I want it to be in broad daylight. And uh, he finally got into this big argument with these guys and they were shouting at each other. And he finally said, you know what? If I had 10 guys like you who knew the neighborhood like you do and who are committed to, to what you are, like you are, we could change this neighborhood. And that was like the click for these guys that said, okay, he's not doing this because he hates us. He's doing this out of love. And they let him alone after that. That is pretty dramatic. And I don't, I'm not saying recommend we do things like that. But that's pretty dramatic. But my point is that for him, this was an act of faith. Real faith in real time, taking real risk. This isn't just some cognitive decision to say, yeah, I believe in these doctrines. This isn't just some mental exercise to say, yeah, I believe in God. Let me give you the proofs of why I believe in God or why the resurrection is real. It's not that at all. For, for, for this guy, it was real time, real risk, real faith. And that's what we have here in Isaiah chapter 7, or at least the opportunity for that in chapter 7. Ahaz is facing some dark times. He is the king of Jerusalem, if you remember from last week. And he's facing, facing attacks from the, north, from the north kingdoms. And so just real quickly, let me give you a rehash of, of what this is. This is kind of a long chapter uh, and kind of a complicated chapter, but I'm just going to summarize the three major sections, and then we're going to look at some applications. But Ahaz is fa facing a risky decision, and that decision is, is, is to uh, go with a bigger threat against a smaller threat, and uh, which option do I take, and which is, which is going to be the best option. And uh, Isaiah comes along to give him a better option. Uh, I'm not going to read the first two verses, but basically it's that introduction. And if you remember from last week, Ahaz is the king of Judah in the south. The, the kingdom of Israel split in north and south right after Solomon. Uh, the south remained the, the line of David, and their capital was in Jerusalem. Well, Assyria had come over and swept over the land and had taken over Israel, but they, had, they still occupied Israel, but now they were occupied with some other battles over in the east and kind of left Israel alone, and Pekah thought, this is my chance to kick, kick Assyria out. So he joined forces with Syria, or Damascus, and they said, let's join forces and kick Assyria out, and let's get Judah to join us. Well, Ahaz says, I don't want any part of this. And so what they do, they start to attack Judah. They, talk, they want to attack the south. And that's where Ahaz got, got afraid, that these were attacking him, and they were going to overrun Jerusalem. And they said, if we can defeat Judah, we can put in our puppet king, and we can all three of us, and maybe a couple of others, you know, attack Assyria. And so this is his question. This is the problem. This is what he's doing. He is, he is contemplating a disastrous, long-range decision based on this momentary panic of fear and probably a lot of hatred to go along with it. That's what he's facing against. That's what he's getting. And he says that, and, and Isaiah, the book of Isaiah says that they were shaking like trees, that Ahaz and the people of, of Judah were shaking like trees. They were so afraid. They were so scared of this. And notice that Isaiah in those first two chapters, first two verses also refers to them the house of David. And this is important because it all refers to, goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promised the line of David would last forever. And this is going to be very important as we move through the chapter because this is the issue. 
And Ahaz is worried that he's going to be defeated, kicked off the throne, and then controlled by Israel. And so what is he doing? He says, maybe I need to go and look for help in Assyria. And so God sends Isaiah to Ahaz. And he says, go there with your son. Go there with your son there, whose name means, um, name means the remnant will return. And the presence of the son is to say, okay, this is, you're going to be in captivity, but, but the remnant will return. And he wants to say, this is, this is the gravity of the moment. This moment is serious. And that name, the remnant will return, is both bad news and good news. It's bad news here because only a remnant will return. It, gets, it becomes good news later on in Isaiah where it becomes at least a remnant will return. <laughs> so it's kind of two ways here. And he's th the point is this is, a, this is a serious moment. And so he's supposed to go with the voice of Yahweh in contrast to the voice of panic of Ahaz and tell him this is not going to happen. He brings them an oracle of hope of salvation and he says trust me this is not going to happen and he calls uh, israel and damascus he calls them just a bunch of couple of burned out old tree stumps don't worry about it yes it is dark yes you will have to fight yes there will be battles yes there will there will be it will be not be good but trust me they will not prevail jerusalem will stand it is a sign of hope but Ahaz is totally fearful, totally afraid, shaking like the trees. And that's what happens. Because when you're consumed by fear and you look out at the world, it looks very, very different than when you look at it with faith. It looks very, very scary for him. And Isaiah comes and says, look, he gives them four commands. He gives him just four commands. He says, he says uh, take heed, watch, be quiet, don't fear, and don't lose heart. And he basically is giving Ahaz a blank check. Just trust it is a blank check. God will prevail. Remember the promises of 2 Samuel 7. And he uses the exact same word from that verse to say, it says, David, have faith because I will be with you always and, and your line will last forever. Trust me. This is the message of Isaiah. And the climax of the whole chapter is in verse 9. This is the most important verse. This is the pivotal verse. It starts after he says, the head of Ephraim and Samaria and the heads of Samaria are only Ramalia's son. And then he says in the end of verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That is the pivotal verse of the whole chapter, and I would say that is the pivotal verse of the entire Old Testament. It's a, it's a play on words. It's two words that rhyme in Hebrew. They just change the vowels a little bit, but they basically sound the same. And he's saying, if you don't stand in faith, you will not stand at all. If you don't stand in faith, you're not going to stand at all. That's, that's the key verse of this whole chapter. Stand firm in faith or you won't stand at all. He is calling Ahaz to say this is not just an intellectual consent. This is not just a mental exercise. This is a practical reliance on Yahweh. Yes, there are real risk, but the resources of God 
will pull you through. He has the resources. They are adequate. Your resources are not adequate, but his resources are adequate. And what he's saying is just basically you need to entrust yourself into the security of someone who has the resources, someone who has the promises, someone whose future is sure. You need to entrust yourself to the attentiveness of Yahweh, who will pay attention to you. And he's saying that panic, panic is inadequate, and hatred and fear and, and, and foolishness, that's just totally inappropriate for someone who is a Yahweh worshiper, who is a God worshiper. He says, my resources have been mobilized. My commitment is unfailing. It will last. And he says, just take the faith. Replace yourself in the reliable care of someone else, Yahweh. If you do not stand in firm in faith, you're not going to stand at all. So Isaiah says, ask for a sign. Just ask for a sign. He says, ask for anything, anything you want. He says, ask for anything from the depths of the grave to the heights of the heavens, anything you want with a sign. And Ahaz responds, oh, I would never trust, I would never test God. I can never do that in this fake, pious way. He's saying, I will never test God. You know why? What I think is because he's already made up his mind. He's already made up his mind and nothing's going to change it. The evidence says that I need to ask help from Assyria. And that's what I'm going with. I just watched a little uh, YouTube uh, discussion on, on biases from a, from a gambler. And the title was like uh, lessons from a gambler that, um, that are good for life or something. And there was this professional gambler and she was telling us about this, what we call, what he, she calls confirmation bias. That we already have a thing in our mind that's already made up. And when they do that, that means we put a lot of emphasis on the evidence that, that reinforces my idea, and we dismiss the evidence that contradicts my idea. Well, that's what Ahaz is doing here. He's already made up his mind that his help is in Assyria. And he says, oh, I can never trust God. And Isaiah says, okay. That just escalates the discussion a little bit. He says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway, and this will be it. In verses, I'm going to, let me read verses uh, 14, 14 through 17. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A young woman will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on your house and your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah and he will bring the king of Assyria. This is not the sign he was hoping for. Now what makes this passage complicated is that Matthew uses this passage to talk about the birth of Jesus and we'll get to that a little bit later. But my purpose this morning is to focus on Isaiah chapter 7. What does this mean for us and what does it mean for Judah? And he says he's given this sign. What do we know about this sign? Real quickly, we go, it's the child that's the focus here, not the woman, okay, first of all. Okay, this is the one, this is the child that Isaiah is calling our attention to and Ahaz's attention to. 
Second thing, who exactly is this woman? We don't know. They never tell us. Some people think it was Isaiah's wife. Some people think it was the King Ahaz's wife. Some people think it was just some random woman in the court. We don't know. And we also don't know anything about her sexual history. The word here in Hebrew is just a young woman, a, a woman of marriageable age, okay? There's no two virgin births, okay? This is just a woman of, of marriageable age. The sign has to do with the child's name, Emmanuel, God with us. That is the whole point. This name carries the whole weight of Isaiah's message, that God is with us, that he is reliable. His resources have been mobilized. We can entrust it. It is real time, real risk, but he is capable. He is able. He is with us, just like he told David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And finally, the function of the child is a sign to monitor the time. He says when, the, when he's eating curds and honey, probably about the age of two and three, I've heard some commentaries and some scholars say it's when he's more like 12 or 13, but I'm really thinking that it's when he's, when he's a young boy. And he says when he, by the time he's two and three, when he's, eight, when he's able to eat uh, curds and honey, God will wipe out Israel and, and, and Damascus. And that's exactly what happens. And then he says, you will be under King Assyria. And basically he's saying, you do not have a clue as the brutality you are going to experience under Assyria. You don't have a clue as to what's coming. When you turn away from me, you're turning away from your only source of salvation. And if you remember from chapter 1, where Ahaz sent this letter to Assyria, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, he said, he identified himself as Ahaz, your son and your servant. And Isaiah is saying, you are going to be right. You're going to be his son and his slave. And that's exactly what will happen. He says, you are not prepared for this. And the sad thing is, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to happen. He just needed to trust. But he turned his back and became an idolater. The last section of the, of the chapter is foolishness and fear bring a very unwelcome future, to put it mildly. Unwelcome future is quite an understatement to what they were experiencing. And so Isaiah begins to spell out exactly how this future is going to emerge. And, and he uses four statements of on that day, on that day. On that day, the decision made in fear and foolishness will have drastic and long-range consequences. You will not know what you will be getting into. Long-range consequences. He compares uh, Assyria and Egypt to, to bees and flies. He said the flies of Egypt will come, and yes, they are annoying, and they will come over your land. And he says, but the bees of Assyria, they will come over your land too and sting you. And both countries were interested in Judah. Egypt wanted Judah because there was a buffer for, for Assyria, to keep Assyria out. But Assyria wanted Judah because then it could be a launch pad for the rest of the, rest of the, rest of the, uh, the known world. So they were both interested in Judah. And he says, they will swarm on you like bees and flies. Long-range consequences. On that day, Judah will be completely humiliated. That's what it means when he says they will take the razor to your head and they'll shave your head and, and your beard and basically your whole body. Uh, he says feet. Feet is a euphemism for private parts. 
okay? And he says, you will be totally humiliated. Ahaz really will be his son and his servant. They will be completely humiliated. And on that day, some good news, or it might be some good news and some bad news. Uh, some good news, they said, you will eat curds and honey. And the bad news is, you will only eat curds and honey. That uh, you will only have two sheep and a cow, basically. You will have limited livestock. And he says, uh, yeah, there will be a remnant that will return, but there will only be a remnant to return. The good news is there are a remnant. The bad news is that it's the only a remnant. And that relief will be short-lived. And three times he mentions the briars and the thorns. The land will be covered with that. In other words, it will totally disrupt the routine. There will be no more agriculture. There will be no more growing. The sheep and the cattle, they will just roam free on the briars and the thorns. And there will be no more, no more growing of grain and growing of food. It will just be, uh, you will, all you will eat is curds and honey. At least, the milk, at least the cows will be giving milk. And that's about the best you can expect. It is short-lived. So what is that for us? The Quakers call this holding center. Living by faith in real time, even in the midst of real risk. I like that phrase, holding center. And the thing is, Isaiah tells them how to hold center. One of my new favorite authors is... Uh, is um, Tish Harrison Warren. I always get those two names mixed up, but I think it's Tish Harrison Warren. And she says that faith is more of a craft than it is a belief. I love that. Faith is more of a craft than it is a belief. It's something that we craft together. It's something that we stitch together. Well, Isaiah gives Ahaz a way to stitch these things together. He tells us how to do that. He tells us first to take heed. And what does that mean is to watch. And I really think the key of spirituality is to be able to see clearly, to watch clearly. Uh, it is this um, uh, forced concentration, to be on the lookout for the grace of God. Uh, even in the, in the deepest, darkest times, we are to take heed. That doesn't mean we deny the, the danger. It doesn't mean we deny Israel and Ephraim about to, to attack. It doesn't mean that there's not danger out there. And it doesn't mean that we sit passive. But it does mean we keep watch. We take heed of what's going on. We take heed of what God has said and what he has promised. He has promised us, he has promised us a, a time when he will break into time and heaven and earth will come together. That this cosmic reorientation has already begun with the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the only proof, the only evidence we have that love will conquer death. And he says, take heed of that promise. Take heed of what God is saying. Take heed of what Jesus is saying, that he is the full embodiment of this. And we will talk about this a little bit later. Take heed of what God's doing in your daily lives, of what God is working around and what you see. Take heed of where, where you see God working in our, in our daily lives. And I really believe that prayer is the key here. Prayer is the one that sharpens our vision. And I would say prayer in the Psalms sharpens our vision. It gets us more acquainted to what, it's, what life is like living on the edge of the inside. That prayer helps us see the truth. And finally, take heed of your gut. Take heed of what's going on the inside. We all do need to do a gut check here. That we are not 
that we are not falling into fear. And, the, and some of the two, the two best indications of fear are anxiety and anger. And we need to take periodic checks of that, of our anger, of our anxiety, because chances are we are living in fear if we're controlled by those two things. We need to do a gut check, uh, of, of gut checks of, of how we're confirming the evidence that we see. We see what's on the inside. So we take heed and we be quiet. This is not passive. This is taking time to be quiet. This is the time where the Quakers say we center down. And be quiet, that is a place of conversion. That is the place where we, the old self dies and the new self starts to grow. And I believe it is real in quiet. That is the, that is the place where we are most naked, most raw, most real before God. And I would even say that sometimes that even happens in our sleep. That in those times of quiet in our sleep that God is working. I don't know why we think God is more pleased with us when we are awake. I think he's probably more pleased with me when I'm asleep. Finally, he shut up. <laughs> but quiet is where we see God. It's easier to hear God speak when we are quiet. And I am certain that Ahaz had struggled with certainty, that he was so sure he was right, that Assyria was the only answer for him. And, and I think Isaiah was saying, shut up. Shut up and listen to what I'm saying. Listen, trust God, trust his message, trust his messenger. Just be quiet for a second. Stop telling God what you're going to do. And he says, do not fear. Do not fear. Sometimes I, I see the church, the, the American church, and sometimes I feel like we're running on a fuel of fear. That we're so afraid of the world out there. We're so afraid of this happening or that movement or whatever. We're just so afraid. And, and we get angry and we get anxious and we get scared and we don't want to go outside and we move back away from the edge of the inside because we're running on fear. And I did this. When I was a youth pastor, I used fear all the time. I used fear with my parents in the church to get support for the youth ministry. You don't know what's out there for your kids. It's scary out there, you know. And, and I would use that with the kids. You've got to be scared. You know, you've got to be on your toes, all this stuff. And, and I, I used fear to motivate. And I repent of that, that it was pure manipulation. That's it. And God is saying, don't fear. Fear is detrimental. Fear makes us make poor decisions. You know, neuroscientists have even decided, discovered, they've documented that when people are in fear, their, evaluate, their ability to evaluate goes down, that they easily make poor, poor decisions the more fear they have. And we see that with Ahaz. Because of his fear, he made a really poor, foolish decision. Don't fear. And along with that, we're not the only one running on fuel of fear. I, sometimes I feel like all of society is running on a fuel of fear. And, and we get the chance to show the world what it's like to live with joy instead of fear. We have to be the good news as well as speak the good news. 
We live in a society that's full of fear and full of fear mongers. But we can show them what it's like to live with joy. And finally, he says, don't lose heart. And that means get on with it. Get on with it and stay with it. Persevere. Keep going. This is not passive. This means we confront the challenges, but we confront the challenges with faith. This is not passive. This is not a passive posture. This is means we are active in the work of redemption and restoration. That our work is working with God. We are participating with Him. We have this weird view of God, not just in church, but I'm talking about in, our, in the world. We have this weird view of God that God gets blamed for everything and we take credit for everything else. That God gets blamed for earthquakes or car wrecks or, or, or illnesses, but we take the credit when we have relief or when we have engineering that keeps us from car wrecks or we, have, uh, we take the credit when we find medicine for whatever is the illness. We take credit for those things, but God gets blamed for everything else. When in fact, all the work is participating in what God is doing. Our work is not separate from God's, and our work is not in competition with God's. We are working together. We talked about work this past summer. It is participating with God. He says, get on with it. God is not there just to fill in the gaps. We're here to work with him. And everything we do, whether you get paid for it or not, is gospel work, is kingdom work, if it's done with faith, if it's done with trust. We participate with him. We stand by faith or we don't stand at all. Living on the edge of the inside means we live by faith in real time with real risk. And holding center is how we live by faith. Ahaz was in the dark and darkness is a scary place. We have trouble sometimes getting our children. I remember Katie, we had trouble getting her to sleep by herself in the dark. We naturally fear that. We think things are, are bad in the dark. But if you look through scriptures, you also see the darkness seems to be where God is a lot of the times. He revealed himself to Abraham when he said, look at the stars. His son Jacob received the promise sleeping on the ground in a dream. Joseph had dreams about his family. Then he had dreams about prophecies that raised him to the level of like the highest level of administration in Egypt. Then we have Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, who also received the announcement in a dream. We have the angels who come to the shepherds at night. That's oftentimes where God is. And that brings us back to Matthew. Isaiah foreshadows the birth of Christ. What Matthew does is he is retelling the story of Jesus. He is I'm sorry, he's retelling the story of Israel in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of all of Israel. He is the embodiment of humanity. He is the embodiment of what God wants to show. And yes, we were talking about a young woman of marriageable age in Isaiah 7, but Matthew takes it and says, no, we're talking about something different here, something similar but different. This is the incarnation. This is where Mary was conceived and the embodiment of God's salvation and the embodiment of God himself was born at Christmas. God is literally with us. He literally came to be 
with us. And God entered the world, the world of despair, a world of fear, a world of, of, um, of desperation, and he did good work. He healed. He cast out demons. He calmed stores, storms. He fed people. He ministered to people. He listened to people. He did good work. He had a rhythm of this whole rhythm of taking heed, of being quiet, of, of not losing heart, of not fearing. And the people, he didn't do this permanently. People still got sick and people still died. But he showed us what the kingdom looks like and what it looks like to live by faith. That's what's different. We're watching him and we watch this loving alternative of how to live in this world. Option one Ahaz had was to, was to surrender to the northern kingdom. Option two was to seek help from Assyria who was no help at all. And he totally ignored option three. And that is to entrust himself into the reliable, loving, resourceful arms of Yahweh. And that's what Jesus shows us. That we entrust ourselves, we can entrust ourselves to the one who saves us. To the true Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to ask the, you guys to come on up and, and close us in, a, in some worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for people like Isaiah who tend to um, speak hard words, but speak your word. Father, we're sorry for being so afraid. Teach us to trust you and live in the alternative world you have created. In the name of our Savior, amen.